Amen. To Christ belongs all power and glory and dominion forever and ever. If you have a Bible, please open with me to the book of Psalms, Psalm 112. And um, as you're turning there, let me just say, I hope that you and your family have had a happy and a joyful Thanksgiving holiday. Um, even, Even in the midst of difficulty and trial, dear friends, we have such reason to stop and to pause and to give thanks and praise and honor and glory to Christ. And so I hope you've taken time this week as we set aside this this holiday to give thanks. I hope that you have paused and recounted your blessings, recounted the, the goodness of God to you in Christ and have given him thanks for all of his blessings, even and especially his grace That is sufficient in all things. Psalm 112. Psalm 112, the blessing of knowing God is our theme and title this morning in the psalm. Now, you guys know that we don't take a whole lot of breaks from our regular uh, kind of verse-by-verse exposition, but it's good to get a broader look of the scriptures at times. And one of the ways I like to do that is to set aside the Sunday after Thanksgiving each year to, to look somewhere else and Often it's in the Psalms. Last year we looked at Psalm 111, and if you can think back a year ago, I told you then that Psalm 111 and Psalm 112 are kind of considered to be twin Psalms. They they go together. Psalm 111 talks about praising the Lord for his deeds and his excellencies, and in Psalm 112 we see the blessing of the one who does that. It's the blessing of knowing God. And both of these psalms are also acrostics. And what that means is each of these psalms goes through the Hebrew uh, alphabet, letter by letter, and each line of the psalm begins with a successive letter in the alphabet. There's 22 letters, 22 lines in each psalm. And one thing that we will use that for that's not just useless knowledge, but that helps us draw some parallels in between Psalm 111 in Psalm 112. So Psalm 112, the blessing of knowing God. Would you please stand with me as we give honor and attention to the reading of Scripture? The psalm is titled, Prosperity of the One Who Fears the Lord. This is God's Word. It's holy, inerrant, and inspired. It reads as follows. Praise the Lord, How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His descendants will be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light arises in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious and compassionate and righteous. It is well with the man who is gracious and lends. He will maintain his cause and judgment, for he will never be shaken. The righteous will be remembered forever. He will not fear evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is upheld. He will not fear until he looks with satisfaction upon his adversaries. He is given freely to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted in honor. The wicked will see it and be vexed. He will gnash his teeth and melt away. The desire 
of the wicked will perish. This is God's word. May he write it upon our hearts for the glory of his name and for the sanctification of our souls. You may be seated. Would you join with me now and let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our God, you are exalted in the heavens. All praise and honor and glory belongs to you. Our desire and our goal today is that you would receive the honor and glory due your name. Lord, what a blessed privilege it is to be able to gather with the saints to worship you, to sing your praises, to read your word, to pray, to study your word, and to remember and proclaim Christ through the Lord's table. Lord, I pray that you would help us now in these few moments to quiet and to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive your truth. Lord, our desire is that you would sanctify us by your word, that you would take your word, plant it in our hearts by the working of your spirit, that you would cause it to bear fruit, and that that fruit would be that we would live sanctified lives that glorify you in all things. Lord, I ask that you would help us in this endeavor because our strength fails Our ability to take and apply your word is is very limited as we are in the flesh, as we battle the old nature of sin. Lord, we strive to be like Christ, but it's a striving that, that only happens in the power of your spirit. So we ask that you would write your word upon our hearts, that you would show us our sin, grant us repentance. Lord, grant us hearts that long to praise your great and mighty and holy name. Lord, I pray that you would humble us before you. Help us to understand your great holiness and our great sin and the great chasm that lay between us but for Christ. Lord, may we consider our great and glorious Savior today. May we be conformed to his image. May we be pressed to follow his example. Pray that you would build into us hearts that fear you, that worship you, and that see the blessing that you give us. Lord, in all that we do, may we desire to bring praise and glory to your name. We ask for your help today. I ask that your spirit would move freely and powerfully in each of our hearts today. Lord, may we be conformed to Christ. We're your people, your possession, the sheep of your hand, people of your pasture. Would you feed us today by your word? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So Psalm 112, as we consider this declaration of the blessedness of the one who is righteous and the one who is in Christ, I want to begin with a quote from Spurgeon. 
Spurgeon commented, tying together Psalm 111 and Psalm 112, and I believe this is helpful. He said, the first, Psalm 11, declares the glory of God, and the second speaks to the reflection of this divine brightness in men who are born from above. So Psalm 111 shows us the divine glory of God, and Psalm 112 shows us the brightness of God's glory reflecting in our lives. Spurgeon continued, God is praised for the manifestation of his glory, which is seen in his people. Just as in the preceding Psalm, Psalm 111, he was magnified for his own personal acts. So, so God is praised because he's great and glorious. Splendor and majesty are before him. And in that great glory, we are saved. We are called out of our sin. We are then conformed to Christ, and we reflect that divine glory in lives that showcase Christ, that follow his example, that put away sin. All blessing in life flows from the greatness and the glory of God. All of the blessings in life flow out of his eternal promises to us. So to narrow this down to to kind of a summary sentence, a summary statement, I'd submit to you the following. We should enjoy the temporal and pleasant blessings of God. We should and we must receive the Lord's blessings with thankful hearts. But we must do so while revering Him and looking to our eternal inheritance in Christ. So it's all about having an eternal perspective. We do enjoy the blessings of the Lord, and, and there are blessings of God that are very temporal in nature that can be enjoyed in the present. But we must receive those with those humble, reverent hearts that fear the Lord and always look toward our eternal blessing in Christ. We must carefully and consciously remember throughout our time today that while there are, there are present implications seen in Psalm 112, the, the great fulfillment, the great completion of these only comes in eternity. We should then follow along with what Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So when you receive blessing, you do so to the glory of God. You receive it in, in a way that brings him honor with a thankful and grateful heart, a heart that does not grab onto and hold and cling so tightly to something that's passing and temporal. But you receive it and you say, praise be to the Most High who's given this blessing to me. This is the duty of the saints. Whether poverty or wealth, whether sickness or health, whether trial or triumph, all of life is lived to the glory of God. I want that to be the underpinning to this text. All of life, as the Puritans would say, All of life is lived to the glory of God. It's like Paul told the Philippians in Philippians chapter 4. He's learned to live in humble means or in prosperity. He's learned to live with abundance or, or living in great need. And then he said, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can can live all of my life, no matter what the Lord calls me to, through and for Christ, for he gives me strength every day. So when we think about the blessing of knowing God, we need to understand that every blessing comes with this ultimate chief end, that we receive it and glorify the Lord through it. 
So we want to consider today the manner of God's blessing. We want to see the promises of His blessing, the results of His blessing. And then we come to verse 10, and we see that hopeless absence of His blessing. So we'll begin the manner of blessing in verse 1, the manner or, or the basis of blessing. Praise the Lord. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in His commandments. What is the central theme and focus of this psalm? It is the praise of Yahweh. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise Yah, the LSB would say. We'll see the outworkings of our blessedness in Christ, but dear friend, if you see that as anything but something that draws you and calls you to praise the Lord, you're missing the point of the text. Praise Yahweh. This focus, this theme is important for a number of reasons, but not the least of which is that it directs our heart in every season. Whether you're in a season of grief and trial or a season of joy and triumph, you're called to praise the Lord. That is the, the first, the primary, the great outworking of knowing God. That is the great blessing of knowing God that we are able to praise His name. That's why we should sing with grateful, joyful hearts because we're praising the name of Yahweh. The basis of all this, again, is the Lord's greatness, His majestic glory, as Psalm 111 would describe. And so whether this has been a mountaintop year, whether this has been a year of valleys, and dear friends, remember that, that some live lifetimes of valley. Some live lifetimes of mountaintop and praise the Lord for that. But whether it's been a season of difficulty or a season of blessing, the command of God is the same. You praise His name. Your life praises His great, awesome power and glory. You do this because He is your delight. You do this because He fills your heart and because His nearness is your good. Dear friend, if you would live a life that praises the Lord in every circumstance, let me exhort you that that type of praise must begin in your seasons of, of triumph and in your seasons of joy because you will not be turned and directed very easily to praise the Lord in difficulty if you could never praise Him in seasons of joy. Wherever you find yourself today, you might be in the deepest throes of darkness and depression and tribulation, and you might say, I'm there and I've not been able to praise the Lord. Well, today is the day that you start, dear saint. Today is the day that you remember the majestic glory of God. You remember that he remembers his covenant, that he has sent redemption to his people. And you praise his name because he is good. And he's faithful, and he calls you to praise him. So we begin with this declaration of praise to the worthy one. But then there's two things that, that the author here kind of gives to undergird that command. Praise the Lord. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. How blessed is the one who fears Yahweh. How blessed is the one who fears the great I am. 
correspondingly in Psalm 111, it says, praise the Lord, I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. Thanksgiving and fearing the Lord are joined and linked there. But what is the basis of that thankful rejoicing? It's the fear of the great, majestic, holy glory of God. When you hear the word fear in relation to, to humans fearing the Lord, uh, saints fearing the Lord, you understand that this is not a, a cowering fear, but it's this humble fear, this humble understanding that, that then leads to an awe-inspired worship of God. That's what fear is. It, it's, it's that which recognizes the greatness of the Lord and leads you to praising Him. It leads you to worshiping Him. It's the heart that's utterly humbled before the great and glorious presence of Yahweh, but then rather than fleeing in fear, you draw near with confidence because you come boldly in the name of Christ. That's what it means to fear the Lord, and that is the blessing of knowing Him is that you do fear Him. You do understand, as Isaiah cried out, that He is holy, 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 and the whole earth is full of His glory. And Isaiah fell down like a dead man, but in Christ, we see that holiness, we see that glory, and we draw near with confidence. Fear produces genuine worship. Fear produces genuine worship of the Lord. It's that fear that causes us to fall on our faces in His presence and ascribe to Him all honor and glory to, to say, Lord, you and you alone are worthy. The one who properly relates to the sovereign God is filled with sober, respectful joy and thanksgiving. The one who understands the greatness of God is filled with a sober and joyful thanksgiving to the Lord. And if this reverence produces worship, dear friend, do you understand that this reverence should mark our gatherings? We gather as the people of God to worship His name, and we should gather with humble, sober, reverent hearts because we're coming into His presence to sing His praises, to read His Word, to learn from His Word, and even this morning to proclaim the death of Christ again and again until He comes. Think about the instruction from Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, Like the Holy One who called you, you too be holy in all of your conduct. That is a, a reverential type of command, to be holy like the Lord. But how did Peter set that up? Back up a couple of verses, verse 13. He said, prepare your minds for action and keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace that is going to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So to revere the Lord means that everything in life is not trivial and humorous. You, you know, we, we like to joke, we like to have fun together, but when we gather to worship the Lord, it's not a, a funny time, it's not a, a light-spirited time. Yes, it's a joyful, rejoicing time, but it's a reverential time. We come with sober-mindedness, with sober spirits. The one who fears God understands that there are times for deep reverence in life, and those times would be worship, those times would be those times when you're studying your Bible, when you're praying, and yes, especially, I think, when you are evangelizing. 
You know, sometimes when we go to share the gospel, we like to kind of break the ice maybe with a joke or something trivial, and maybe there's nothing entirely wrong with that. But that's a serious conversation, an eternally serious conversation. And we should treat those with reverence, with fear, with sober-mindedness. So maybe you do break the ice, but you better quickly turn it back to the serious note of the eternal consequences of sin and unrighteousness when contrasted against God's holiness. Matthew Henry described the fearful person by saying that they stand in awe of God and they have a constant reverence for His majesty and a constant deference to His will. Does your life Does my life display a constant reverence of God and His majesty? Do our lives display a constant deference to His great and holy and sovereign will? Or do you ebb and flow because you still fight against the flesh? The honest answer is, of course, that there is ebb and flow. There's not that constant rightful reverence before before the Lord, but it should be our desire. It should be what we press toward. When you think about this reverence and our children, when you think about worship and our children, I think this is something that is both caught and taught. We've got to teach our children reverence, but we've also got to display it for them. So in our homes, we we need to sit down and read Scripture, passages of Scripture, not a couple verses, but passages of Scripture, and teach them both in word and in example that this is an important time. It's a time to sit still and quietly listen and give attention to the holy word of God. We need to sing with them. We need to pray with them. We need to teach them what it means and what it looks like to worship. And really, that ought to be done in our relationships too. It's not just parents to children, but we should all lead one another by example in what reverent worship looks like. So how do we pursue this sober-mindedness? How do, what does this fear of God look like in our lives? The text tells us, praise the Lord, how blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. The fear of the Lord works itself out in someone who greatly delights in his commandments. And you can see that there is a corporate and an individual aspect to that. The corresponding statement in Psalm 111 says, I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart in the company of the upright and in the assembly. There's a corporate aspect to delighting in God's commandments. Do we delight in the opportunity and the privilege to sit under the authority of Of God's Word? Do we joyfully look forward to the times where we gather with the assembly of the saints and sit under the truth of God's Word as it is proclaimed from the pages of Scripture? That should be something that we all long for, the preacher included. We're all under the authority of God's Word, and it should be the delight and the joy of our souls. There should be that weighty reverence, but it should be a delight. In our joy. One of the Hebrew definitions for the word delight is take care of. You hear that idea of guarding. So, do you guard?
the, the proclamation, the teaching, the instruction of God's commandments in your own heart? Do you take pleasure in the opportunity, and does it take a, a, a high place in your life? It ought to, because it's God's holy word, it's our instruction, and, and it shows us the holiness of God and how we are to be conformed to his will. But there's also that individual component. All of our life is not lived here in the assembly of God's people. So there's also the individual component to delighting in the Lord's commands. Psalm 119 verse 14 says, I've rejoiced in the way of your testimony as much as in all riches. Is that your heart when it comes to the Lord's word? Do you delight in and rejoice in the Lord's testimony as much as in all the riches of the world? If somebody came and offered you a, a huge sum of money but said they would take every copy of the scriptures that you have, including those that are electronic on your phone, would you take that deal? Do you delight in riches or do you delight in the testimonies of God's word? What is your response to communing with the Lord in his word and in prayer? How do you know what your response is? Well, you consider your appetite. Do, do you long for more and more and more of the truth? Or are you able to just kind of take a, a small bite-sized chunk of it and then that's enough and your appetite is satisfied and, and you move on and you go about your day? What is your appetite? What do you long for? Do you sacrifice things in order to attain it? When you delight in something, when you desire something, you will make sacrifices to get it. Do you do that for the Lord's word? Do you make sacrifices in order to come to the Lord's word, to commune with him so that you're able to praise him and have your life conformed to the image of Christ? So again, what we see is the manner and the basis of God's blessing. The manner and the basis of his blessing is that we fear him and we delight in his commandments, but we also must understand that this is not because of any merit of our own, because even the fear of God and the delight in his commandments is only because of his loving kindness and his grace. You on your own would never delight in the Lord. You on your own would never fear him, but because he makes you alive together with Christ and puts his spirit within you, he teaches you to fear him, to love him, to desire to commune with him. And then he blesses those in whom that, that desire grows and flourishes. So then let's consider the promise or the, the promises of God's blessing, the promise of blessing, verse 2 and following. It says, His descendants will be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light arises in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious and compassionate and righteous. It is well with the man who is gracious and lends. He will maintain his cause in judgment, for he will never be shaken. The righteous will be remembered forever. So we said the theme of the psalm is the praise of Yahweh. Do you see a theme here in verses 2 through 6? It's blessing corresponding to righteousness. Look at verse 2 and let me explain. His descendants will be mighty on earth, and the generation of the upright will be blessed. So the first half you have a blessing. The second half you have this 
outworking of the blessing that's due to righteousness, a righteousness that God works in us, but it's a practical outworking of righteousness, and verses 2 through 6 all follow that pattern, a blessing followed by that picture of righteousness. So let's think practically about these things, about verse 2. His descendants will be mighty on earth. The descendants of the righteous man will be mighty on the earth. Now, this is not a promise, though the Presbyterians may think so. This is not a promise that the children of believers are are covenant children and are almost automatically in the family of God. This is not a promise that the children of every righteous person will be saved. It's a promise, a general promise, that God's blessing comes to the generations that follow after a righteous life. Think about Abraham. Abraham was righteous in the sight of God. Now, the Lord brought blessing to Abraham because of his covenant faithfulness. He made a promise to Abraham, but the outworking of that was because Abraham had faith. He believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness, and then he walked in that righteousness. And through him, all the families of the earth have been blessed. Proverbs 20, verse 7 A righteous man who walks in his integrity, how blessed are his sons after him. The righteous man who walks in integrity, how blessed are his sons after him. In Jeremiah chapter 32, the Lord promises that he is going to scatter Israel. He's going to punish them because of their idolatry and their immorality, and they will be scattered, and they will suffer at the Lord's hands. But then at the end of the chapter, verse 38 and 39, the Lord says, They shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. The Lord blesses them for their own good, He causes them to fear his name for their own good and for their children after them. That is the blessing of righteous living. It goes from generation to generation. And as parents, we ought to strive to leave that type of legacy. We ought to strive to leave a righteous, holy, godly legacy for our children after us. We ought to do that by instruction. You can leave a legacy in instruction, but it should also be through the example of your life. You ought to be upright. The descendants will be mighty on the earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Verse 3, wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Again, look back to Psalm 111, verse because we see there that there is an eternal component to this wealth and riches. Psalm 111, verse 3, splendid and majestic is his work. So that's the comparison, the, the splendor and majesty of God's work and the wealth and the riches of the righteous man. And obviously, there must be an eternal component to this because our wealth and riches in, in this life completely, completely fall short of the Lord's majesty and glory and splendor. It even says his righteousness endures forever. 
you are in Christ and you will be blessed with his righteousness forever and ever and ever. You might know temporal prosperity. The Lord may bless you in this life, but the ultimate blessing that you will know is the blessing of his righteousness credited to your account, made perfect in you when you go to glory. Psalmist continues, light arises in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, compassionate, and righteous. Light arises in the darkness for the upright, for the righteous. Jesus said, I have come as a light into the world. John chapter 12, verse 46. Come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. So what is the great light that the Lord gives to the righteous? It's that he calls you out of darkness. That he calls you out of your sin and allows you to know the eternal blessing of being in Christ. Calvin commented here, The ungodly, however they may exult in present prosperity, they are nevertheless blind in the midst of life, light because they are strangers to God's fatherly kindness. The, the world may exult in their, in their present temporal prosperity, but they're blind to the light of God's eternal kindness. Calvin continued, On the contrary, the godly upon whom the favor of God constantly shines, though we may suffer ills that are in our present humanity, we are never overwhelmed with the darkness. That's the blessing of knowing God. That you will suffer the ills of our present humanity. You will be weighed down with heavy burdens, with heavy trials. You will fight sin and it will feel like the weight of the world is crushing in on you. But you will never give way. You will never be completely overwhelmed by their darkness because you are in Christ. So dear friend, you should say yes and amen to this promise of God. Because it's hopeful encouraging. It presses us on. In, in your darkest night, and that dark night can come from sin or from suffering, dear friend, look to the light of Christ. Look beyond this present suffering and look to the hope that is to come. And then you run with endurance because your eyes are fixed on the glory of the Savior. In verse 4, what marks this light? that shines in the darkness for the upright. It says, He is gracious and compassionate and righteous. So let's draw that out and think, what does that look like in our lives, to be gracious, compassionate, and righteous? When thinking about that, my mind was drawn to Matthew 18, verses 23 through 35, where Jesus was responding to Peter. Peter said, hey, how many times do I forgive someone who sins against me? And Jesus goes on to tell a parable, and you can read that in your own time, but the, the parable effectively was the story of, of a great master and a great king who had a slave who was deeply in his debt. The slave came and said, I can't pay it, and the master said, I'll forgive your debt. So that slave goes on his way, and then that slave has someone who is in his debt. And rather than being gracious and compassionate and righteous, that slave calls in the debt of someone who also cannot pay it. And the master of the king hears of this, 
he calls the slave back to himself, and the text says that he handed him, handed him over to the torturers until his debt could be fully repaid. Dear friend, think about what that could look like in our lives. We have been forgiven by the Lord so greatly, have been and continue to be forgiven so greatly of the Lord. And so when we refuse forgiveness, when we want to call in all the debts owed to us by another, we are like that evil, wicked slave. And the Lord's response ought to be very similar to us as it was in this parable. Now, there's no condemnation if you're in Christ. And praise the Lord for that. But we ought to respond. We ought to be marked by the grace and the compassion of that master, of that king, whereby he forgave a debt because it couldn't be paid. He, he let the price go. In Christ, we know the price wasn't just let go, but he paid it for us in full. And we ought to show that same loving heart others, that same generous and gracious and compassionate heart. And, and really that marks, that idea marks verses 5 and 6 as well. It is well with the man who is gracious and lends. He will maintain his cause in judgment. The LSB, I think, gets that translation good at the end of verse 5. It says that he sustains his work with justice, sustains his work with justice. It's well to the man who's gracious and lends, the one who gives freely. Generous and charitable living should mark the child of God because of the generous charity that the Lord has given to us in our poorest estate. When you were dead in trespasses and sins, you had no price. You had no offering. You had no goodness to offer or to give. But the Lord made you alive together with Christ. And verse 6, I think, ties into that as well. For he will never be shaken. The righteous will be remembered forever. Psalm 15, verse 5, kind of ties these ideas together, that the one who's gracious and lends will never be shaken. Dear friend, you will never outgive the graciousness of God towards sinners both in your forgiving of sin and in your charitable generosity, just in life in general, you will never outgive God. So don't even allow that to cloud your judgment when the opportunity presents itself. You will never match the giving of Christ's perfect life for your sin-drenched soul. You can't match it. You could never give so much free forgiveness as to match what the Lord has given you. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. The Lord loves one who does not lend at an interest, one who does not take advantage of others. So give with a generous spirit. Give freely because this honors the Lord and, and it puts you in the place of the blessing of knowing God. We see at the end of verse 6 that the righteous will be remembered forever. Acts of righteousness are worth remembering. Honorable people are worth honoring. Those who live in such a way as described in this text will be remembered forever. Gracious generosity is a sign of Christian life. It's a sign of 
the Lord's process of maturing a saint, and it should be honored, and it should be imitated. So we have the manner of blessing, the promise of blessing, and ultimately this promise of blessing is seen in verses 4 and 5 of Psalm 111. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, and He will remember His covenant forever. That is the Lord's greatest promise to you and to me, that He will remember His covenant forever because it's His covenant, the new covenant that we celebrate in the blood of Christ that causes Him to forgive you in your helpless estate. So what's the result of all this? We're we're talking about what does this look like in our lives. What is the result? Look at verses 7 through 9. He will not fear evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is upheld. He will not fear until he looks with satisfaction on his adversaries. He is given freely to the poor. His righteousness endures forever, and his horn will be exalted in honor. What is the result of knowing and walking in God's blessing? In one word, steadfastness. The steadfast are those who walk within the blessing of the Lord. When evil tidings come, when you are maligned for righteousness, when you are maligned for love and for obeying the Lord, your heart is steadfast, trusting the Lord. Again, back to Psalm 111, verse 7, correspondingly says, the works of God's hands are truth and justice. So what are these evil tidings? They must be the opposite of the truth and justice with which the Lord works. It's Satan's evil, his, his maliciousness, his deceitfulness. And when all that comes, your heart, dear saint, ought to be steadfast. You ought to trust and remain in the Lord. The reports of bad news, the rumors of evil, the slanders, the actual loss and adversity that we face in life to the one who trusts in the Lord, it does not move you from your steadfastness. You come back to verse 1 and you praise Yahweh. You praise the Lord. You do this again because your heart is keenly set on eternity. If you allow any temporal present focus to, to cloud your vision, to cloud your heart, you're going to be weighed down in times of difficulty. Your chief, your great, your only goal and desire must be to look to Christ in eternity and to long and to strive to go to be with Him. You must hold all the blessings of life loosely. And you're able to do that because your heart is steadfast and because you trust the Lord. And this depth of faith, dear friends, does not come overnight. You, again, you don't, you don't cling to the things of this life and then all of a sudden you're just able to free yourself from them. No, you must take steps presently, day by day, to free yourself from the concerns of the world. When fearful enemies wage war, when you have these adversaries discussed in verse 8, your heart is upheld and you do not fear. You lean upon the Lord because you know He's good and you know that He will deliver you. 
there's one great enemy that we will not ever overthrow and overcome in this life. It's the last enemy that's to be abolished. Paul said the last enemy is death. But one day, that enemy, that adversary will be trampled under your feet because it was trampled under the feet of Christ when he rose from the dead. Your heart is upheld. You do not fear. Psalm 121 says, The Lord is your keeper. The Lord will protect you from all evil, and He will keep your soul. In Psalm 56, David prayed, In God I have put my trust, and I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? If your trust is in the Lord, what can anything in this life do to you that will take away from the eternal inheritance that you have in Christ? We stand firm in this hope, beloved. We stand firm and and we live as those described in verse 9. This ought to be the result of walking in God's blessing. He's given freely to the poor. His righteousness endures forever and his horn will be exalted in honor. Again, this draws back to Psalm 111, verse 9, the corresponding verse. The Lord has sent redemption to his people. He has ordained His covenant forever, holy and awesome is His name. So you don't go and earn your salvation. You do not go and give freely to the poor and somehow merit God's blessing. No, you have God's blessing because in your poorest estate, He has sent His Son to die for your soul. He has sent His Son to shed His blood for you. Your righteousness will not endure because of something you can do. Your righteousness endures forever because your righteousness is Christ. His righteousness credited to your account. It's not your devotion, but the devotion of the Lord to you. We must give freely of ourselves, as freely of ourselves to others in in every aspect. We must give as freely as God and Christ has given freely to us. So corresponding to this great hope, coming to verse 10, we see the absence of blessing. So so this is the flip side, the contrast. It says, the wicked will see it, this blessing of God, and be vexed. He will gnash his teeth and will melt away, and the desire of the wicked will perish. Now you, dear saint, you will never be vexed. You will never be perplexed. You will never be angry because you will never know the place of God's anger, the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth because there's no condemnation for you who are in Christ. The desires of the wicked will perish. The wicked themselves will perish into the eternal lake of fire. The blessed hope of those in Christ will continue forever and ever. We are the victors. Our hope remains. This is the ultimate absence of blessing, ignorance, and rejection of the gospel of Christ. When you think about this absence of blessing, dear friends, realize that we have the message of hope. You have the message that can bring someone into this blessing of knowing God. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So go and proclaim Christ boldly. Let us take our hope in the Lord. 
Let us remember the charge at the beginning of this psalm. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise Yahweh. Let's praise Him for His mercies and His great grace toward us. As we exult in the Lord, let's serve Him with fear. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Let us delight in His commandments. Take joy in the calling of the Lord to obey His word. Dear friends, may we be of good courage. May we be steadfast because we see all these blessings of God. And we know that when He promises blessing that He will bring it to pass. It may not always be in the way that we think or the way that we presently want. But all of these things the Lord brings to pass to those who are His. So may we walk in steadfastness. May we walk in righteousness. May we remember that the promises of the Lord endure forever. May we fear His great and holy name. May we delight in His commandments and live and walk in a way that honors Him. We walk by the Spirit according to the truth and the word of God, and we do it all for the great end in all of our life to the glory of God alone. Let's pray.